Amen. Thank you, brother. The Sent Ones. It's the title of this sermon. Uh, Pop Culture made a show called This Is Us, and it manipulated the feelings of Americans thinking that they belong when they watch it. But to belong to something like a family um, is really a truth that does not belong to the culture. Ultimately, it belongs to the God who transcends culture. If you're going to be an us, and if this is going to be us, and we're going to be together, and we're going to be able to weather the difficulties of life, we better know what we're together about. Well, in Acts 13, the church was together, and they were an us. They were a people And then God decided that they were going to be a people that it'd be better for them to fraction and split and to go in the best of ways to start another church, to go be us somewhere else. They were sent ones. Uh, We call this today church planting. What is it? (laughs) What is church planting? Should the church know instinctively what church planting is? Yeah. Should churches plant other churches? Yes. Yes, we should. We all know what church planning is, I hope, because it is the biblical mission of what Jesus said disciples would do. They would go, they'd preach the gospel, they would begin to, as that gospel gave new life to people, gather those people together, they would begin to regularly recognize what Jesus said to recognize, authentic baptisms, bringing in people to the table, authentic weekly or bi-weekly or indeterminate amount, but at least a regular amount of participation in the Lord's Supper and living different than the world. Living before the world is an example and hope that God brings uh, individuals who are in the darkness into the marvelous light. When they do that enough, they do it in such a capacity that eventually Acts 13 should be happening. There is a lot of principled things going on here. So it's not just an apostolic thing. It's not just that Paul, an apostle, is the one that can do this. I mean, the idea is, is that this is the standard principally of what the church would continue to do. That that I just told you is not normal among Baptists today. And that's unfortunate, especially given our history. So by way of introduction, you know, uh, I shared this in 2019. Some of you may have uh, been listening to it. I'm going to share it again. It's not fair to ancient Baptist history to say that we've forgotten what I just said is a normal practice because from 1750 to 1950, the, 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 the Christians in churches in America that called themselves Baptists, that was just them reading their Bibles and determining uh, what they thought a believer's baptism was and accompanying truths. There were 200 churches like that that thought this way in 1750. By 1850, 100 years later, that number had gone from 200 Baptist congregations to roughly about 8,600. That's phenomenal. And if that weren't enough, 100 years past that in 1950, Baptist congregations in 1850 were 8,600. By the time 1950 was estimated, 77,000 Baptist churches existed in America. 1950, that's not even 100 years ago. That Baptists, in their DNA for 200 years, seem to think that church planting, starting new churches just down the street, across the town, in the next little pocket, where, uh, where we could just have a, a more of an access to more lost people, was normal. They say that seven out of 10 people won to Christ. Now, they is like Barna Pew Research, like people who do large spectrum polls of churches over the last 25 years. They say that the trend for a quarter of a century is that seven out of 10 people that are one to Christ are usually one in churches five years old and younger. 
If you want to look at this idea negatively, what's happening in Acts 13, you can just biblically go to the book of Revelation. There's a pastor named Jim Lay who made this point. From the book of Revelation, if you looked at all the churches as Jesus addresses them in that early church context, as you look at all of those, you cannot today find one of them that's still alive. Churches are like people. They live, they die. And what they do in their time frame is important. If there's an arch of their life, it should be that they're born, and as they grow, eventually at this peak, they're going to start another church, and then that church is going to have a life because this one's eventually going to wane and die. It has happened historically over and over and over again. Church planning should be at the heart of every growing and thriving church. I preached this passage three years ago. September 2019, in a church in Lufkin called Kelty's First Baptist Church, I think a thriving and growing church. We all agreed it was. I think it is. And that church has done what verses 1 through 3 talk about. Here we are, the sent ones. Because churches plant churches. My hope for that day, when I preached it three years ago, was to convince the church that in the same way that the Holy Spirit of God moved to plant churches by calling out, in Asia Minor, by the way, in, that early, in the Mediterranean, when that happened, my hope when I preached it three years ago was that, that people would hear when we read and we taught that the same power can happen today. The same thing can happen. That hasn't changed today. It is still a real hope of any church And it should be our hope as a church as well. This sermon should remind us of our roots in a positive way. Back then, we were on the side of being called out. Today, we're on the side of being sent. So my hope for today is we are now on the other side of this passage, is that we will see the three principles that are in this passage for church planning. And that we will carry over them, carry them over, to today, to your own lives today. This is my hope. Churches do this work in Acts 13 of planting churches. They do it through three things. Spirit-filled leadership, spirit-filled mission. Those are capital S, Holy Spirit. And then evil spirit, that is lowercase, spirit-filled opposition. That's three principles in this passage. That's our three points today. Let's see them. Look at verse uh, 1. So if churches are going to plant churches, they're going to do it through spirit-filled leadership. Uh, Everything rises and falls with leadership, right? I'll tell you guys a story that you've heard probably before. And uh, when when we were opening Hijinx Trampoline Park, where I was the manager, uh, because I was in management, for those of you who have forgotten that, um, you know, we were going around at the time, and we were looking at parks. And I remember Mike driving us to two parks. It stood out to me that day when we went to those parks that these parks were identical. Uh, so they had, the, they had top-notch equipment, wonderful, like, fun things to do in these parks. And one we went to was an absolute disaster. And, and it was just not fun. There's no organization we were on the same equipment, but it was like no fun. Everybody was arguing, fighting. It was just difficult. We didn't know what rules to follow. And then that same day, we went to another park. Again, same equipment, same status, and yet we had a phenomenal time. 
We were able to enjoy the dodgeball on the trampolines. And we were able to have an awesome time like playing in our own spaces and doing flips and tricks and stuff. And we knew the rules and they weren't like, you know, awful for us. They were good. They gave us structure. Why? Leadership. The difference between those two parks was quite literally the people that were there telling us what to do and not to do. They were offering leadership to us. And I'm telling you, it had a drastic difference. Now, I haven't looked it up to see which one survived or not, but if that continues, one of those, in Longview, it's not going to be open anymore, all right? And the other one, and Tyler, is, it, it is going to be open. And it's literally a, I mean, take, that's not Bible, right? It's just like everything rises and falls with leadership. Now, if that's true of the secular world, and we see it over and over and over again at your favorite businesses, how much more of a spiritual reality is it for the church when they're going to consider men and apply that to the, apply the scriptures to them, that they should be men who are leaders? And I'm telling you, we have an example in Acts 13 that if you're going to be a church that successfully plants churches, that thinks about church planting, there needs to be spirit-filled leadership. Look at it. Look at this list. I know as a pastor of this church, I aspire to be on a list like this. Everybody who desires to be a pastor, Paul says to Timothy, aspires to a noble thing. They're people that are set apart. Well, this list, when you look at these guys, is a pretty interesting list to consider. It says first that they were prophets and teachers. When it says that in verse one, it means that they were skilled in preaching. They were skilled in teaching. And they taught the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. They were masters of the gospel and of the scriptures. That's what they were about. They were not about shenanigans. They were not about the hottest way to reach the Greeks. It wasn't what's hot, what's not, what's next. It was God being glorified through the preaching of the gospel through them. That's what qualified them as masters of the scripture. They spoke, people listened And that natural authoritative leadership that they had was not an abuse. It was a clear delineation from God's word to the people. And that's what set these men apart initially. Also, I want you to see something. They were, as as Antioch has grown, evidently, a very diverse and uh, diverse people. Their representation of God's heart for what a healthy church with healthy leadership looks like. I mean, it should be a goal to have a representation of the the city that they're in, the people around them. And Antioch was a very diverse place. Well, look at the leadership. Barnabas, it says, he's a native of the Greek island that him and Paul are about to go to, Cyprus. So he's a native of a a Greek island. You see how it says Simeon, who was called Niger. They, they add that there, meaning he was black, was an African church leader in the church here in Antioch. When you see Lucius was a Jew who, uh, when you see that name, he was a Jew, but he took on a Greek name, showing that he's clearly a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek Jew. Manaean is probably the craziest one to me. It says he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, that's Herod Antipas, as he was known, Uh, he was the ruler of Galilee during the time that Jesus Christ was on the earth. And he, he, it would have been possible that this man, Manan, was maybe witnessed uh, Herod beheading John the Baptist. He probably witnessed that and was like a servant in that dude's like, like indentured sense who has now somehow come to Christ and matured enough to be a leader in this church. Pretty phenomenal. Finally, Saul, the missionary to the Gentiles. Yes, 
right? Soon to be called Paul, right? But you know what? Saved out of extremism and a violent hatred that we just saw a few, a few chapters ago. People were laying their jackets down at the feet of this guy's feet when he murdered Stephen. These men in leadership, they were violent men. They were pagan men. Some of them were racist men, religious bigots. They were people full of hate before their conversion. But now, now they're spirit-filled for, and, and set apart by God for a unique purpose to lead this church. It really is an incredible thing. What stands out to me the most about these leaders, though, is the way Luke describes two of them. So in Acts eleven twenty four, 24, we learn that Barnabas was full of the spirit and of faith. That was when he showed up in Antioch. We also learn in Acts 4 that this same Barnabas was a son of encouragement. We also have seen that the other man that I'm trying to bring a point here to is Paul. And the, the, the Bible is clear that in uh, verse 9 today of our text, you see Paul also is filled with the Holy Spirit. The leaders in this, in this church that stay or that send or, or, or are sent out are spirit-filled men. And what were these men devoting themselves to? What was their normal practice from eight to five? Verse two tells us what spirit-filled leadership looks like in a church. Look at it. It said they were, while they were, doing what? Worshiping the Lord and fasting. Fasting and praying, it says in verse three. Man, this is convicting for me as a spiritual leader in this church. It should be convicting for you if you're a spiritual leader in this church. It should be convicting for you if you're a Christian who desires to be a spirit-filled leader in your own areas of influence. A spiritually-filled leader pauses the busy-body logistics of everyday ministry to turn their eyes toward Jesus. People never get tired of doing that if they're doing ministry faithfully. I heard somebody tell me one time when I was talking to them about I was a pastor that pastors, in their opinion, don't do anything besides preach. I remember having an interesting conversation at a seminary about that. Pastors don't do anything besides preach. It's sometimes what people think. That's just not true. At least that's not all a pastor should do. Most are very busy. Most pastors I meet, I don't get to meet because they're busy. I myself get busy. It's easy for a spiritual leader to fill their time with other things. Imagine in Antioch how there was much to do in that city besides getting together and worshiping and praying. There was a whole lot more those leaders could have been doing. Luke could have highlighted it for us. And we should assume they were doing a lot of stuff. But what is the primary marker of spiritual leadership? Do not lose sight of your own relationship with Jesus. Spend time in the word and in prayer and in worship, seeking the kingdom first, as Jesus said. Just consider this morning, even if you're not a leader, your own relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, if it is true, Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them as they give watch over your souls, for you, they will have to give account for it and to do it joyfully so it's not a, a burden to them. That implies that your connection to leadership is, is as any indicative that we, that we as leaders receive, you can receive as a Christian. Why? Because that's how God has built it. We're all subjecting ourselves to Jesus. We're under shepherds to him. So make the application of point one in your own life, beloved. How loud can the world be, right? How quickly the spiritual disciplines can leave us. 
They leave us, and then we're left with the doubts that plague us. But if you want to be a part of, of, of what Christ is doing in planting churches and in working, it, 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 then realize there's grace for you in the slipping, and there is only a way forward that is Christ-exalting. And, and leaders should help you do that. They should help you get your arms up when they're weak and to be able to say again, yeah, that's right, I'm forgiven. Yeah, that's right, I, I can and I will desire again to love God's word. I can preach the gospel. I need help doing it, but I'm willing and eager to do it. Spirit-filled leadership both models it and helps others do it. That's how churches start. It starts with spirit-filled men leading the body to do God's will. Second point, if churches are going to plant churches and missions is going to continue as it has in this first example here, then it has to happen through a spirit-filled mission. I want to show you that. Verse 2 again. Let's read it. While they were worshiping the Lord, the text says, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Look at verse 4. It says, so being set out by the Holy Spirit, they, they went, they went, so underline that, right? They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, the book of Acts is precious when it's studied in its right context. The acts of the Holy Spirit throughout this book catalog the one true God behind world missions constantly. All right? Now, the greatest missionary stories you can think of, plug them in here in your mind with me, where someone or some people are, are saved, it always has a divine author. And he just spoke through these godly leaders of this church. So they gathered together. Their attention was not on themselves. This is very important. Their attention was on God. They weren't fidgeting and thinking about their lunch and where they were going and this, that, and the other that would maybe distract or deter from what was happening. They weren't so overwhelmed by the cares of this world forgetting to cast them on Jesus. They, they're casting their anxieties on Jesus, believing that he cares for them. They're submitting all of their distractions into him with a hope that somehow he's going to speak again and they're going to have hope to go through that next week. And right there in that moment is when God decides, remember the mission. <laughs> Set these two people apart for me. I've called them. Now, we shy away from strong wording and acts like the Spirit says, the Spirit does. But, but I want you to see in this text that Spirit-filled mission is 100% the primary thing. It was while they were doing that normal thing that the Spirit said. Like, look who's talking. Okay, the Holy Spirit said it. Don't shy away from this. Our, our focus in some churches to conjure up the Spirit saying things most of the time is happening in, con in connection with a lack of biblical like foundation. And that's why we're gun shy of it. But when we have the biblical foundation and we've sat with the text, when the Bible says the Holy Spirit wants to do something by saying or doing, it means it and we should trust it. We should study it. If our singing is about us, and how we feel. If our stories when we preach is about what's happening that's fun and cool and how we feel, if our understanding of gathering and doing Bible is picking our favorite passages and kind of just sprinkling the gospel with them, why are we wondering 
why there's not a commitment dogmatically in the pulpit, in the people to go and to fulfill the Great Commission. Why, why is there a disconnect in that? Oftentimes it's because we fail to see the spirit-filled mission. We fail to actually lean on not our own understanding, but the spirit. Spirit-filled leaders, they don't have to look far to get to the spirit-filled mission. Let me say it like this. To understand this point, it isn't difficult to see it. It's just difficult to live it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. If you want spirit-filled leadership, or to be a spirit-filled leader, or to be like that, you want to accomplish the Great Commission, you better realize the spirit-filled mission is one full of sacrifice, dying to oneself daily, giving one's life away for the sake of others, opening one's home and resources and heart. It is killing a me-saturated understanding of your relationship with Jesus and entirely embracing a them understanding of your relationship in Jesus. But look what God's doing. In this passage, God wants the nations to be saved. This is the Holy Spirit saying, I want to save people. So set apart people to go and tell those people that I want to save. What God wants, God gets. And the question is, will this church obey his mission and take part of it in Antioch? Answer, they do. God has set apart for the work two founding members of this, from this mother church, right? It's going to hurt Antioch in some ways to lose these leaders, but the church all agrees. It's worth it. Give the best to, our na- to the nations. I mean, consider, we haven't learned anything about these other guys until now, and I think that's God showing, look, it ain't wise to go plant another church when you don't even have leadership established there. But the two guys who started it have discipled and raised up elders and these other men. And now the Lord says, hey, not those guys you raised up, you again. And then they go. That's not a, that's not a rule you have to follow. It's just an observation of the text. That's beautiful. Because then you start to think like, man, aren't they going to miss like Paul? I mean, if you read the book of Romans, they're going to miss Paul. <laughs> they're going to miss that guy. They're going to miss all of the eloquence and the beauty and his ability to just... You know, then not be eloquent, only preach Christ and him crucified. I mean, they're going to miss this Athenian scholar, but they're willing to give him up. Why? Because they know what the Spirit said. They are on mission as a church. Antioch did it, and they did it in a phenomenal uh, and a remarkable way. They become, this church becomes the hub of a global mission movement that we now know today as Christianity, writ large. They were first called Christians, where? Antioch. Now, let's say this before we move on. They don't do this blindly or foolishly. We know that because of this first recorded story here by Luke. They were ready for the opposition that was to come to them because they had began to you know, together in worship, trust God's word and plan and think about future discouragements and and reflect on what God has done previously to keep the gospel going through persecution. I mean, they're, they're there because of persecution. I mean, they've been tested and tried, but they are not deterred. They're on mission. Before we move on to the last point of, of, the, of identifying that opposition and talking about it, let me just ask you just personally today, 
Have you lost sight of the Holy Spirit calling you to the mission of God? I ask it with a finger pointed at you and a bunch pointed back at me. But I do ask you. I think this text asks you. Who is the Holy Spirit setting apart? He's setting you apart. If you've got a portion of the gospel that is faith, it's been apportioned to you, steward it well. And what does stewardship look like? It joins Paul and it joins Barnabas and it goes. It's that simple. Beloved, ask yourself, are you setting yourself up to go out and to share the hope of Jesus with people? I believe we are. I believe we're trying. I believe we're growing and groaning even in anticipation. If you're not, let it be a check. Let it be a checking, a loving check from God. You should not read Acts 13 and realize we said there's spirit-filled leaders given the mandate, you know, the Holy Spirit's given it to them, and then there's obedience that follows. You shouldn't hear that and then get discouraged. Notice John's going to show up. Other people are coming. It's not just these leaders. The church had to also answer this call, and I know some people went with them. Read all the letters to Paul. And I guarantee you they got to a point where they were really doubting their decision, or maybe they made the wrong decision. Who knows? But before we just do all conjecture, just apply this text simply. The Spirit went, they were sent out by the Spirit and they went to Seleucia. Have you been sent out by the Spirit and if so, to where? This is a global picture. They're going to another city. But I don't think it's a stretch to say an individual Christian can go across the street. They can go to opening their own table. They can go to a coffee visit. They can go eat tacos with someone. They can go and play a board game. They can go and hang out. They can go and play at a park together. They can go and swim together. They can go and enjoy common grace together with an explicit billboard message of, hey, the Holy Spirit sent me here today to tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled leadership and a spirit-filled mission are going to help us get through. Point number three, spirit, lowercase s, So this is inferior to the Holy Spirit, but a real spirit-filled opposition. Okay, you see the story as it unfolds when they first get there. Luke and his sovereign, God's sovereignty, and then in his, like God using him, Luke picks not all of the conversations that have happened all the way to Sergius Paulus, the the leader that was read about in in 6 and 7, this proconsul. Okay, what you should think is, is Antioch sends out Christians to go on a mission, and they share the gospel like a ton in all these places, synagogue first and all, all across this island. If you look at this on a map, when it literally says, you know, for you, it says Seleucius, that, that's still on the mainland, okay? And then, and then they catch a boat, and they get over to the island, which is Cyprus. That's the whole area. This is the island that Barnabas is from. And when they arrived at Salamis, that's on the east side. And by the time this ends and they're over here in Paphos, they go as far as that. That's the whole island. This is cataloging the church expected them to preach the gospel all the way. And what Luke shows, though, is he wants to go ahead and get you some, I don't know, like hope of like, check it out. God saves a Roman leader. That's where we're going. And in that, I think it's a prime example because it shows that when you get serious about preaching the gospel, there will be opposition. 
So they're going. Imagine them in verses 4 or 5. They're going through all these places. Look at 6 now. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, what happens? They come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, a man named Sergius Paulus. This was a, a man of intelligence. It's a gifted man, a wise leader, strong leader, governor set up by Rome to kind of work and keep this very important island right in the middle of great exchange places among the Mediterranean Sea. This matters a lot for Rome, this area. This leader is an intelligent man, Luke wants you to know that, who summoned Barnabas and Saul. So this guy reaches out because he's heard about this. You see how all this is like Luke is kind of just going straight there, but we got to fill in the gaps. I mean, what's happened with this Sergius Paulus, this leader? He knows his people. He, he knows who shows up on his island. He's aware. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they probably didn't know initially, but I guarantee you word has made it to this leader. Who, who, who are these, who's this team of Christians that showed up and, and is trying to set the world upside down? What's this foreign message? What is this strange teaching being a man of intelligence, a lost man, but nonetheless like a gifted man, he says, hey, I, I want to hear that. I want to hear what they're talking about. And before we go any further, I want to stop and make note of something. That church that sent them out was really concerned for the world around them. Those Christians, Paul and Barnabas, were really concerned about any person that they would meet. Like They were ready to meet people. They wanted to see men and women come from enslavement to sin to life in Christ. I promise you, if you don't get excited about that right now, you will struggle to read the rest of this book of Acts. If you don't get this drilled into your heart, that somehow if you're born again, that should come with a necessary commitment that the Holy Spirit has put inside of you. That at times your sin may get your eyes off of, but through repentance, through whatever is needed, the truth of God's word will bring you back to realize our God saves if you will get that deep in your bones at this point, you will see this first introduction into the nations and then everything to come with great excitement and hope. I stop to say this because I really want you to ask yourself this morning whether you are with or opposed to the gospel going out in power as it does here on this island of Cyprus. Now, if you're like me, I know most of you and I'm sure your immediate answer is a knee-jerk, no way. I don't oppose this idea. I don't oppose the idea of the gospel going to the, the, the far reaches around me. I welcome that. And I, and I would believe you. I would agree with you. But think about this point. We may say we're not opposing it. I mean, heck, we're trying to do it, right? We may say. But more pointedly, let me ask you this. Do you believe it can happen? Do you believe that it will happen? I'm asking myself, I'm asking you, do you believe it will happen? There's a difference. <laughs> do you believe the gospel will save? Do you believe it'll be enough? Let me say this, to stop believing that it can is to oppose it. To not believe that God desires, really desires, that all people will come to the knowledge of the truth and to know the one mediator between 
him and God and man, the man Christ Jesus, is to oppose the message. Unbelief happens. Uh, Doubt happens. But it happens seasonally in life, in the life of a Christian. Because when unbelief becomes chronic, it may be that God is actually trying to truly convert you, the doubter, rather than whatever you're holding out to someone else. So, so analyze your unbelief and your doubt in God's ability and hold it up against what you know should be there, belief. It's like this. You, you will work in opposition to God's kingdom advancing if you're so consumed with your own personal kingdom advancing. That's what this looks like practically. It's easy to know that God's setting apart people to go and to preach the gospel. It's a whole other thing to believe. You're that person called out to do it yourself and then go do it. Why? Because there's all of these chronic things that want to keep your eyes off of that actually happening. In our text this morning, we must see in this final point, I think the power of God. Not the strategy of men, not not the planning. We can always do better in those things. We can always regroup, reschedule, rethink. Not that synagogue, this synagogue. Not that event, this event. Let's talk here, be here. We can do that. But if we don't believe that somehow when we're preaching the gospel, the power of God's reaching all the way over to Paphos, ahead of us, to a leader of the Roman enemy, so he'll he'll get ears for the gospel even though he's been listening to this garbage from this false teacher. I mean, if we can't get that kind of faith, let this text be the challenge to that. Because that's what it means to be believing that God saves. Luke shows a specific conversion, I think, to demonstrate that. It's not to undermine those means of normalcy that, that have been happening. It's actually to encourage those things. It's to say, hey, will you just hold out hope that on the other side of the island, like there's someone who will be saved? This is God's language in Acts. There's this beautiful uh, future in Acts where Paul actually uh, decides to make a decision and, and, and he hears a guy in Macedonia be, being like, come to me. And Paul realizes like God actually wants people. There's another time in Acts where we'll hear language like there are many people in that city that, that will believe in me. It's the certainty that God will do it and the faith in that. That's what sustains I imagine a bunch of discouraging conversations that these guys had. Unbelief happens, but it can't be chronic. In our text this morning, we see them believing that God is the power, that the gospel is the power of God to save. Do you realize this is where Barnabas grew up? It said in Acts 4 that he was a native of Cyprus. So this, this, this son of encouragement who was there to try to unleash Paul in the world... He, he goes with Paul to his own hometowns, like stomping grounds for him. This is where he grew up. But he's willing to believe, despite, you know, maybe whatever Jesus said about a prophet not being welcome in his own hometown, he's there. The church in Antioch wanted this. These men wanted it. They believed God could do it. And guess what? God did it. Look at verse 8. So it says, Elimus, which is magician, it's the meaning of this guy's name. He opposed them. And you know what he seeks to do? Look at the opposition here. He seeks to turn the dude away from the faith. Let me give you some some stuff here to help. So the Elymas or Bar-Jesus, he's a Jewish false teacher, uh, ousted in our text here, uh, helpfully so. Basically, he's teaching for selfish gain. 
This is a guy who doesn't actually care about the glory of God. He just uses what he says will glorify God for his own selfish gain. He's charmed, an aristocrat, and he's hanging out. Sergius Paulus is that guy. He's a Roman leader. He's appointed over this province. Now, when it says intelligent man, he's a truth seeker. Isn't it neat that while Paul and Barnabas are preaching the truth in other areas, a truth seeker hears about it and seeks them out? Man, that's neat. That's cool. That's, that's what gives me hope about Reformed theology and evangelism. Like even when I can't see what God's up to, he is doing something, right? Because it depends on him. And he will not, he's not a liar. He proves himself true. And that's what happens here. You know, the flesh of Bar-Jesus, this false prophet, it's ruling this, this king, Sergius Paulus. And think about this, a local leader, a governor, a president, you know, a sort of person. He's deceived by this great darkness. The Bible commands us to pray for those in authority over us, no matter what we think of them personally. So we submit ourselves to that. Paul and them are doing that. Later, Paul will write about that. But I guarantee you, while they're, while they're doing this, they're praying for these men, that they're going into these cities. They're asking God for favor as they're sent out. This is what sent ones do. They pray. And when the time is right, if the heart of this proconsul could be turned to believe the gospel, I think these guys believe his governing could change, that, that the, the hope that could come from him believing. They want to see someone like this come to Christ. So in verse 9, when it says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, look what it led him to do. So you can overcome discouragement. That's a spirit-filled opposition. Okay, that's kind of what we've seen. Like, that's the idea. But now, how, do you, how else do you overcome spirit-filled issues? This is my favorite. Look at the text. You say things like this. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's direct. <laughs> At the right time, Paul, not creating a Twitter account, he's not hanging out over in the, you know, the outskirts of society, throwing bombs in on it. When he's been invited in, when the time is there, Sergius Paulus is there, and Paul goes to speak, this Bar-Jesus distraction only wants to get in the ear like a worm of the, of the king and lead him to think wrong things about God. Paul, how does he overcome spirit-filled opposition? Well, the Holy Spirit looks this dude in the eye and rebukes him. Then he says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Okay, we probably shouldn't say that because <laughs> we're not an apostle. That person we say that to is probably not going to be blind, but it did happen here. Now, you would think that at this time, it's like, okay, if there's ever a principle in how to plant churches and think about spirit-filled leaders and spirit-filled, you know, like, like mission, then you've got to have the gifts. Like, there's got to be some astonishing sign, and if you don't have that, it's not success or it's not an effective witness, right? I mean, here's the proof. Now, some would say that, but if you'll focus on what happens... Paul's bold with the truth, in love, but nonetheless bold. He calls this guy out, and then he curses this man, invoking, yes, the apostolic authority to do something miraculous. And yes, it does happen. This guy's blind. Look what the text says. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. I think that happened in such a way that everybody knew. It happened publicly, and it happened in such a way that this person has now been usurped. There is a greater authority here. And in that usurping, what happened? Look at the result. 
He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished. Look at the text. At the miracle? He was astonished that that the magician was blind? No, look at the text. That's not what it says. What, what, what blew, what, what was the final straw? What blew the mind of Sergius Paulus? What won him over to the, the reality that he was dead in his sins and he needed to be made alive and trust Christ? What, what really just woke Sergio Paulus up to the reality that he's dead and he needs a savior? Teachings. The teachings of the Lord. That's what astonished him. That's the straw that broke the faith camel back of Sergius Paulus. That's what pushed him over the edge in belief. It was, it was once this error had been silenced, God's kindness led him to repentance. God speaks and Sergius Paulus hears Paul and Barnabas share with him from the word of God that though he's a wayward sinner, he can trust Christ. Teachings of the Lord is the same root words that we've seen of what did the work in Antioch, of what did the work in Pentecost, was there tongues? Was there spirits of fire? Is there now a mute, or excuse me, a blind man as a result of miracles? Yes. But what are the miracles doing every single time? They're pointing to the really astonishing thing that 3,000 are added to do these normal things. That, that, that a new people, the, the Gentiles, are being brought in to understand what? That, that they also can believe in God. That a man here can be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I love this. If you're a passive-aggressive person, you don't like conflict, and you're uncomfortable with Paul here. If you're like me, it's the opposite. You're like, yes. But look at the boldness of the Apostle Paul carefully here. He's not ready to go toe-to-toe with this enemy until it's very clear that the Spirit is involved. And how in the world, if you remember from this whole sermon, has the Spirit been involved? From the beginning. From the beginning. Will you remember that? Will I remember that? Will the church remember that? Paul will remember that. He'll make a loop on this first missionary journey. You know where it ends for him? The first one, back in Antioch, where he was sent out by the Holy Spirit. Do you know why he has a desire from Antioch in future chapters to go again? The Spirit's going to set him again to go apart. You know why? Because he's at Antioch, and he's praying, and he's worshiping, and he's studying the Word. It's, it's, not, it's not miracles to the end and never forget the beginning. It's the spirit setting apart godly leaders, setting of God, God's mission before them, and then them through opposition, trusting him, teaching through opposition, being encouraged through, through the doubt that God is with them, no matter what it looks like, no matter how long the island is, there is a paphos, there is God's work being accomplished. You can die in the middle of the island and still believe that. And I want to close with that. If it's true that, God, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, if it's true that we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, then how do we have confidence like Paul when a Sergius Apollos never gets saved? How? We believe this. Little children, John wrote, you are from God. And you have overcome them, talking about Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I think a lot of Christians think that that verse implies that through spirit-filled opposition, you will always overcome. That's not the point. 
Some spirit-filled opposition may remain opposition until you die. The point is, is that how you die is, is how you live, is how you started, is where you stayed. If you perish anywhere, you perish in the arms of Christ. And in the arms of Christ, that is the hope that you need to fulfill the commission. And if the commission for you means you die halfway on the island of, of, of Cyprus, then so be it. You die halfway on the island of Cyprus. But more people will continue to go and Sergius Apollos will be reached. Do you have hope in that? Because that's what grips the missionaries in the Bible. That's what grips them. That's what gripped John Mark. That dude quit halfway through one of these trips. That's what gripped him, though, was eventually the hope that what? Even that was a comfort, for greater was Jesus in him than the opposition that actually chewed, and chewed up and spit out his faith. It's both and. Now, the good news about Luke and the good news about this text that you study is, man, look at that carrot, right? There, Sergius and Paulus is reached. They do make it to the end of the island. And from there, the text is clear, isn't it? What we'll look at next week. Uh, now, Paul and his companions set sail. <laughs> you know, they set sail. In our text, the enemy is temporarily blinded. We have the hope that ultimately, you know, Satan has been bound, brothers and sisters. We come to the table with confidence today. I hope it's the confidence that Jesus Christ, who was preached here and saved a man, is in you, is working through you, and he's going to work, work beyond this moment. But this moment is a real moment where we should pause. We're not ready to go out until we really worship, right, and hear. And that's what we get to do in closing today. I want to encourage you, people will be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Teach them. I promise they'll be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Teach them. Show no partiality. Don't think theoretically. Just do it. This was the first work of missions. It never stopped being the last work. Spirit-filled leadership, spirit-filled mission through evil, spirit-filled opposition, all for the glory of God. Do not grow weary. Grow expectant. Let's pray. God, I close in prayer with this group of people who I love. And it's a hard sermon to preach, God, because three years ago, we pre I preached it. And Lord, when you, when you read a text, God, when we submit ourselves to a text like this, it's easy to forget the hope that we have that people will believe when we preach the gospel. But God, just as the mist and darkness fell so swiftly upon the liar, we pray that you would, you would just send your mist and darkness on the liars that are in our heads or in our church or in surrounding places, God. May we silence them. May we hear the rebuke of Paul and may it translate into words from heaven. No son of the devil, no enemy of all righteousness, no deceitful villain is gonna stop your paths from being straight and clear for us. God, help us to remember these promises. Help us to stand with men like Saul and Barnabas here in Nacogdoches. God, help us to be remembering with great fondness where we started, where your spirit set us apart. Father, I'm not even referring to RBC and Kelties, God, but will you just help us even now to go all the way back to remember again at the table today together when your spirit set us apart for salvation. We were welcomed at that table an enemy, now your friend, all by the body broken and the blood spilt of your, of your own son. God, remind us of the ransom we have. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us so that we could walk free. Help us to sing and help us to believe that together in Jesus' name. Amen.